you can turn to Colossians chapter 1 in your Bibles. Um, this will be our only Sunday to worship together in the month of December. Um, next time we'll do this will be 2015, January the 4th. Yeah, it's amazing. We're already into a new year. Um, on that Sunday, uh, we'll begin worshiping every Sunday together in the Sunday worship gatherings, uh, making our way toward Easter, and then we'll go from there, praying for the Spirit to lead us. Also, on that Sunday, we'll begin to have intentional activities for our kids to be poured into during the preaching time, as, as well as uh, not just in here, but also in the back for the young ones. So uh, we'll be telling you more about that over the next few weeks. And uh, we'll also, on that Sunday, begin receiving gifts and offerings from you uh, as, a, as an act of worship and demonstration of, of uh, gratitude, how God's been gracious to you. Uh, that's what, something we've talked about before. We, we have our own bank account now in the city of Monroe. Summit's not handling all that for us. We have our own financial team we're putting together. They'll be meeting in the next few weeks, planning out a 2015 budget. Here's what we're going to do with what God has given us as faithful stewards. We're going to be generous. We're going to be wise. Um, for instance, um, right now we're talking about uh, giving away 15% of whatever God gives us to other organizations to help spread the gospel and plant churches all over the world. Um, so we, from day one, want to be all about church planting, all about spreading the gospel, and generous, because God's been so incredibly generous to us. Uh, we'll actually have a members meeting sometime in uh, January, toward the end of January, to go over a 2015 budget. Here's what we're going to do with what God's given us, so that you can all be celebrating with us what God allows us to do. We have lots of dreams and desires about what God wants to do through us in the city of Monroe and beyond. And uh, that takes finances to, to do some of those things. And so we, we talk about all the time how we're family. So because we're family, we can talk about things like money in a church that's not always something people want to talk about, but because we're family, it's what we, what we do. Like families talk about budgets, talks about, talks about how they're going to spend money, how they're going to go on vacations, how they're going to save up to buy a house, how they're going to buy a new car or whatever they're going to spend money on, how they're going to give money away as a family. What's well, the same thing that we do um, as a the family of faith that's called the Crossing Church. And so uh, you guys be praying about that. Uh, we want to be open and unashamedly um, able to discuss these things as a family. And if you want to help us out, uh, you can actually let us know uh, where you think God has you as far as what you plan to give next year as an act of worship, as an act of gratitude. Um, that would help our financial team plan because we, we have no idea. We have like, no history of what people have given so we have no idea what people are going to give. So just as an act of planning, as an act of, of um, a commitment on your part, you can let Scott know he's leading our financial team. You can uh, tell him today after the service. You can tell him tonight at his house. You can slip him a little note. You can send him a text message or email. Just this is where I think God has me. This is where I think God has our family. This is what I think I can commit to give. That way you guys can plan. That's all it is. Nobody's going to come chase you down and say, you know, you're a dollar short. What's your problem? Uh, much grace, much grace as we go into 2015. Uh, Summit was very generous with us, and we want to be generous to other organizations as well, and you can help us do that. Uh, let's jump into our teaching. Kendrick and I are going to be walking through a teaching today that, that will be foundational. Uh, one of the foundational teachings you'll hear from us as the Crossing Church, uh, not necessarily standalone sermons, but you'll hear us come back to these truths continually. You've already heard these truths, probably in missional community gatherings. Uh, are in other DNA settings, but uh, it's, a, it's a set of teachings called the four G's. I think we have a nice, yeah, there we go. 
It's a nice uh, picture of the four G's. Our plan was to walk through this over two Sundays, but we went to Huntsville last Sunday, so we're having to condense it all into one Sunday, which is really hard. Hope we can do it in under an hour. Uh, I'll spend part of the time teaching it, and then Kendrick's going to come and do the, the rest of it. Uh, one of the things that happened last Sunday in Huntsville, uh, the Summit elders recognized me as the first elder, the, the church planting uh, elder of the Crossing Church. So they've taken me through this assessment process over the last year and then affirmed me in that way. And what we're, they're going to help me do is do the same thing with Scott and Kendrick. <clears throat> so over the next several months, we'll be walking them through elder assessment, see if they measure up, see if they're... Uh, whatever they, however we're assessing them, and then we'll affirm them as one church family as future elders of the Crossing Church. You're, you're going to be part of that. We'll be telling you more about that as we go forward. But um, Kendrick is one of the men God has uh, raised up in the Crossing Church to help teach the Bible, to help lead this church. So Kendrick is not the guy who fills in for me when I'm on vacation or when I'm gone. Kendrick is one of the teachers for the Crossing Church. And so as we Go into January, we're going to walk through the book of Colossians, and so I'll teach some of it, Kendrick will teach some of it, eventually when we get somebody else to lead musical worship, Scott will be teaching some, and then we're praying about other men God raises up in the future to be leaders, teachers, elders of the Crossing Church. So uh, let me go through my part, and then I'll turn it over to Kendrick. What are the four G's? The four G's are simply a concise way that we preach the gospel to ourselves, preach the gospel to each other. Preach the gospel to those who are outside of the Crossing Church. Uh, We believe as a gospel-centered church, the gospel's not just a hoop you jump through to come into Christianity and then you move on to other things. We believe the gospel is the foundation for how you come to know Christ and it's something you walk in, you live in, you, you rest in the rest of your days. The gospel being, this is who Jesus is, this is what Jesus has done Of course, that's how you come alive in Christ, but you never get away from it. You keep coming back to that. Everything we do flows from this reality of who Christ is, what Christ has done. You don't believe the gospel once, and then you go on to more complicated theological issues. You stay in the gospel. You come back to this reality of Christ. One of the reasons we want to teach through the book of Colossians is because it's so powerful. It's a powerful picture of the gospel, who Christ is, what Christ has done, is, is, is a book that's heavy on the identity of Christ. And so you see this idea of, of, of the gospel being in the gospel, not getting away from the gospel in places like Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And you, Paul is writing, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's, that's all of us before Christ, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So there's transformation through Christ. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So there's, there's the gospel. It's who we were. Here's how the gospel changes us. And now we continue in the gospel, continue in the hope of the gospel. We don't, we don't get away from it. You see this truth in places like Galatians 2.14, where P, uh, Paul is actually confronting Peter over a sin of favoritism that he's showing to the Jews over the Gentiles. And Paul writes in Galatians 2.14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? There's a lot going on there. We won't get into that. But Paul is recognizing something in Peter's actions that is what? Not in step 
with the gospel. So there's a reality that we believe, and there's a reality that we live. And when we, we sin, we're getting out of step with the gospel that we profess and proclaim. So becoming a Christian is coming alive in Christ through repenting of sin in, in faith with all your heart, mind, soul, believing in the gospel of Christ. So you are placing all you believe on the reality of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. This is more than just intellectually affirming a truth. Yes, I believe intellectually this is true. This is placing all of your weight on this truth. That's belief. That's faith. And it shows up in how you live your life. So if I tell you this propositional truth that Jennifer is my wife and I love her, but then I go home every night and live in a one-bedroom apartment by myself, you're like, what? There's not just something wrong with what I'm doing, but there's something wrong with what, what I'm believing because my actions are not backing up what I profess to be true. So there's, there's something that needs to change, not just in what I'm doing, or there's something that needs to change in what I'm believing. Either I don't believe as a husband I need to live with my family, which is crazy, or I believe that Jennifer is my wife and she's not, and I'm crazy, right? If the reality is she's my wife and I love her, I'm going to be there with her all the time and, and be with a family and be a husband and be a father to my, my wife and kids. And so if you hear me say Jesus is the only true Savior of the world, Jesus Christ is King of the universe, Lord, boss, like we just sang in that song, then Jesus alone is who I worship. Jesus has died for my sins, all of them. He's made me a new person, given me life, joy, hope, peace, everything, he's, he's totally transformed me, then you'll see me living in a certain way that is in line with the truth of the gospel. And when you see me doing things that's not in line with the truth of the gospel, then there's not just something wrong with what I'm doing, there's something wrong with what I'm believing. There's something wrong with what I'm believing about the gospel. The four G's are built on the foundation that believing the gospel with all your heart, soul, mind, Romans 10, 9, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead, you will be saved. And then your doing flows from what you believe. And so if there's something sinful about your actions, you don't just need behavior modification to change your actions. You need to, to trace those actions back to what are you believing that's causing you to commit those actions, do those sins. Either do sins or not do righteous things, right? Sins of commission, sins of omission. And we, we all can do this. We all will do this as we're part of DNA groups. We'll be walking through life, looking at what we're doing, what we're not doing, tracing those things back to what are we not believing about the gospel? What am I worshiping instead of God that's leading to these sinful actions? For instance, every single one of us would affirm in here that God is not only sovereign and in control over the entire universe, everybody in here would affirm that God is our Father in heaven who's good, kind, and loves us unconditionally. So if those two things are true, then why would we ever be worried or anxious? If God's in control of everything and he's our father who loves us, has good, kind, unconditional love toward us, then why would we ever be worried or anxious? Because there's something about those truths, those realities that we're not believing. There's something about who God is, what God has done that we're not trusting. So about a month ago, my family took a short trip um, to Dry Creek, South Louisiana camp. And we were playing in the woods. They had all these obstacles set up in this camp. And we walked up on this one obstacle that uh, had these wooden steps going up one side of this platform and then just a drop-off. And there was a sign on it that said, Trust Fall. So I'm like, yes. My girls had never done Trust Falls. 
Uh, my generation grew up on Trust Falls. You do them like every week in youth group. <laughs> so my girls can finally experience Trust Falls. But there's only five of us, so it's not like we can get on both sides and catch them because Sarah would probably be like, I'm just letting you drop. I'm not going to try and catch you. So I said, all right, all right, Abigail, immigrants, you sit up here with your back toward me, and then you just fall backwards and I'll catch you. Now they know I'm their father. They know I love them, right? But you think they just fell back? unconditionally just let themselves go? No, man, they had their abs all tight and they were like leaning back real slow and wouldn't fully, fully trust me until we had done it three or four times. They was like, okay, I can do this. I can fully fall, place all of my weight on my father because I know he's not going to drop me. I trust him. Now, if we went and did it like right now, like if I put my daughter on that table and said, fall in my arms, I catch you. Do you think they would do it? Very hesitantly, right? They have to learn it all over again. Learn to trust me again in a new setting, a new environment. It's the same way in our belief, our trust of our Father. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's very similar because we, we learn to trust, we learn to believe, we know our Father's good, and there are times where we get it right, enabled by His Spirit, but, but we have to learn it continually because we still have areas of our heart, our mind, our soul of unbelief. Like we don't do it perfectly. We keep having to learn to walk by faith, not by sight. Learn how to trust our Father. And so it's a continual process called sanctification where we continue to learn again and again to believe the gospel, to trust our Father, to believe our Father, that He is who He said He is, that He's for us, that He loves us the way He says He loves us, that He'll do the things that He said He would do. The four G's are four overarching truths that help us believe again and again in the gospel, believe again and again in who God is and that he, will, that he will do what he said he will do. So let me walk through the first two. Number one, God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. They call the four G's because they all begin with the letter G, and they aren't the only four truths about God. You can basically sum up the attributes of God with these four truths. But of course, you can describe God in other ways. And the first is God is glorious. You see the, gloriness of, the glory of God in Scripture and the heaviness of the weightiness of God. The glory of God is what Moses asked to see, and God says, if you see it, you'll die. Now think about that. You're just looking at something, and it's something that's so heavy, weighty, glorious, that it will kill you on the spot. Can you imagine looking at something like that? The glory of God is what descended on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20, where the mountain became so holy, God says, if they touch the mountain, they're dead. That's God. We're not Him. We can't even look upon this glory. The glory of God is what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6, where God appeared before him and the cherubim and the seraphim were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is, holy is the Lord of God, Lord of hosts. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Like, all I can do is see my sin in the presence of the glory of God. The glory of God is what John saw when Jesus appeared to him in Revelation chapter 1. And it says, John, the, the apostle who was described in the gospel of John as the beloved one, the one who loved Jesus the most, the one who was possibly closest to Jesus, who reclined on his chest around the Lord's supper table. John, same apostle, sees Jesus in his glorified state. Not Jesus, the, the Nazarite carpenter in his humble state, but Jesus in Revelation 1, his glorified state, and John falls before Jesus as one who's dead. This is the glory of God. His weightiness, his awesomeness, his, his power, his might. 
God, God's glory is what makes people want to fall on their face and die in His presence because it's so overwhelming. Our family went to see Scrooge uh, Friday night at the family church. Great play. Would highly recommend it. One of the better productions in the area. So it's uh, taking the story of Ebenezer Scrooge and infusing it with the gospel. So it's a very good play, but it's not a perfect play. So Ebenezer wakes up, and it's the voice of God who's telling him these three angels are coming. And Ebenezer asks, who is this? And the voice says, I am that I am. And Ebenezer is kind of, in the play, dismissive, flippant, kind of sarcastic, with who's supposed to be the voice of God. And I'm sitting there thinking, I wonder how many of these people, seven or 800 people, know like, that's not how it would go down. That was really the voice of God. Like, Ebenezer would either repent or he would be dead. One or the other, if it was really the voice of God Almighty, Yahweh, I am that I am, speaking to him. That's how it is with the glory of God. In the presence of God's glory, you see how big God is, how amazingly small you and everyone else is. Yet despite this, despite the fact that God is glorious, we struggle in living with a fear of man, a fear of others. Who we respect more, who we defer to, who we live in fear of, who we care more about what they think about us than about what our glorious God thinks and says about us. Fear of man can be living, uh, someone living to get the praise and respect of people. Fear of man is living, worshiping more what people think about us than what God thinks about us. Fear of man is living to make sure people don't think we're idiots. It's not just living in a way so people think we're wonderful. It's living in a way so people don't think we're terrible. Because we want people's opinions about us to be good. Fear of man is I want people to be impressed with me or I don't want people to be unimpressed with me. Sometimes we think we, we have this licked because we say things like, well, I don't really care what people think, think that I'm awesome. People don't have to think I'm awesome. But we live in bondage because we don't want people to think we're idiots. So we're always trying to make sure people have this opinion about us that either we're awesome or we're not idiots. We're somewhere in between. Right? It doesn't mean now we go to the extreme of living with this chip on our shoulder that says, well, I don't care what anybody thinks. So I'm just going to go around offending everybody to show everybody how I don't really care what they think. While you're offending everybody so that they will think that you don't care what they think. Showing that you are living in fear of man because you want to control people's opinions about you. And you really care that they think that you don't care. If you can follow that. We sh- now we should care, right? For instance, we, we care... Uh, when someone that we love dies, like a spouse or a kid, or family member, friend. But, but if we can't go on, if we can't live unless they are here, then have we placed too much meaning and value in that person? Too much joy in that person that, that they have functionally become the God that we worshipped and when our God dies, we can't function? We can't go on. This is living in the fear of man and not a fear of God. Now, now here's the balance. We, we do care and we should care about the praise and criticism of others. I've heard it said years ago, you treat praise and criticism like chewing gum. You chew on it for a little while. You humbly evaluate, is there any truth to this? 
truth to the praise, truth to the criticism, and you spit it out. So, so in a way, we do care because we're called to know people, love people, and reach them with the gospel. And we can't just plow through life offending everybody and not caring about them. But we don't care too much. We don't base our justification and our joy in what people think about us or how people evaluate us. We don't live life where man is big and God is little. Our joy and justification comes from God, who is big. And compared to man, man is very small compared to God. So so who is the person you live in fear of most? Just, Just picture them in your mind. The person or the, it could be a group of people, a group of individuals. Their opinion, you tend to value more than God himself. Everybody here has somebody. Everybody here has somebody. Who is that person? The person whose opinion of you can change your day, change your emotions. You have them in your mind. It might be a group of people. Now, imagine That person, that group of people, imagine them standing next to the God of Mount Sinai who is shaking the mountain with his glory, who is shaking the mountain with his presence. There's lightning and thunderbolts and earthquakes shaking the mountain just because God's glory is settling on that mountain. Picture that person next to that God. Why do we live in fear of them? See, the remedy to living in in the fear of man is to see God in all of his glory and to live in fear of him. To overcome living in the fear of man, you don't need a smaller view of man, you need a bigger view of God. And as you see God in his glory, ultimately displayed through Jesus, Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, so to grow in the fear of God, look to Jesus, right? Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the demonstration of God's glory. The most perfect picture of the glory of God. And all through the Gospels, you see him in his humble state, pulling back the veil and letting people see who he really was when he would do miracles, when he would he'd be glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he would reveal himself to his apostles. Look to Jesus. We, we have this thing called Christmas, right, where we're celebrating Jesus, and we have cookies and lights and trees and ugly Christmas sweaters and parties and eggnog and, and all these gifts that we give, all this fun stuff, right? The whole purpose is to take all that fun stuff and let it drive our worship to Jesus. Let it drive us to Jesus to see him for who he was, that he would come from heaven to earth to become a babe, an embryo in the womb of a teenage girl and grow up and live a righteous life that none of us can live and die a sacrificial death on our behalf. All to demonstrate and display the glory of God. God is glorious so we don't have to fear others. Secondly, God is gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves. How do we know if we struggle to believe that God is gracious? When we mess up, all we hear is idiot and failure. When others mess up at things that I don't mess up at, they're idiots. They're failures. What's wrong with them? How can they still be making the same mistakes? I don't do that. Why do they do that? 
When we struggle to believe in God's graciousness, we have to wallow in self-pity and regret and feel really bad for our mistakes before we can feel forgiveness and cleansing from God. When we get things right, we tend to take too much pride in ourselves and become self-righteous to those who don't get it as right as we do. I mean, look at us. We're here this morning. Where's everybody else at? What's wrong with them? What's their excuse? Right? When we struggle with God's grace, we beat ourselves up too much when we fail and we exalt ourselves too much when we succeed. Don't confuse this with that God is glorious. When we struggle with God's glorious, I don't have to fear others. It's a struggle with who we're trying to impress. When we're struggling with God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. We're struggling with how we impress people. This is our record. This is what we've done. Here's the good things I've done, the bad things I've avoided. Look at, look at me and be impressed. Don't look at my flaws and give me disapproval. Because of our sinful nature, we are all born in a state of sin, a state of condemnation, so much so that all we deserve is the wrath of God. We believe that's fundamentals of the teachings of the Bible. Even the best that we can do, Isaiah tells us, is as filthy rags before a holy and righteous God. Even the best that we can do is tainted by pride and self-glory and sin. Because God is holy and we are uh, imminently sinful, all we deserve is hell. Any day we don't wake up in hell is a gift of God's grace. Because that's all we deserve. Like there's, there's, there's nothing in us that makes God say, of course I would choose you for the team. Look how awesome you are. Yet, that's, that's not what we get. We don't get hell. In fact, today, billions of people around the world, mostly who don't worship the God who created them, woke up, ate good food, drank good coffee or tea or whatever it is they drink in their part of the world, enjoyed their family, went to work, went to do whatever they do on Sundays, laughed, made memories, had fun, even though they are sinful, only deserving the wrath of God and all God all they deserve is for God to kill them today. They're alive, including us. Because God is gracious. Because God is gracious, he gives them time to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, to begin to worship the creator and not the creation. How is this possible? How can a holy and righteous God not just kill sinful people left and right? It's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. Again, we come back to Jesus, Right? God has graciously sent His Son to live the perfect life we fell at, to die in our place sacrificially. We alone deserve to die. And our standing before God is based on and rooted in Jesus Christ. And because our life is hidden in Christ, Colossians 3 tells us, when God sees us, He sees us through the lens, the righteous life, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. So much so, guys, got to get this. So much so, that how the Father feels about Jesus is how the Father feels about you because you're hidden in Jesus. As the Father is fully pleased with His Son, so the Father is fully pleased with you. I mean, you mean like when I do things right? No, no, no. All the time, irregardless of what you do and don't do. But don't I have to do right things for God to be impressed with me? You can't impress him. You can't impress him unless you can be more righteous than Jesus Christ. 
He's not impressed with our righteousness. It's tainted by sin. The, the, the times we do anything good, worthy of praise is only because the Holy Spirit has empowered us to do it. And it's done in a way that gives God the glory, not us. And so you resting, trusting, believing in Jesus, hidden in Jesus, you are fully pleasing to your Father in heaven all the time. All the time. As the Father loves the Son, so the Father loves you all the time. You can't make Him love you more. You can't make Him love you less. How is this possible? Like, this is crazy. Who would come up with this? How can this be? It's God's grace. It's God's grace. It's why we're going to sing songs about Him for eternity. Right? It's why we give our lives now sacrificially to make Him known. Because this is amazing that the God of the universe acts this way toward us with this much grace, love, and mercy. And so you don't have to prove yourselves. You don't have a record good enough to impress God. You don't have a record bad enough that God hasn't already forgiven you for through Jesus Christ. You just rest in Christ. God is glorious. We don't have to prove ourselves. Let me pray these things over us, and then Kendra's going to take us to the last two. Uh, God, you are truly, you are truly glorious. You are truly glorious. Forgive us for times we are flippant about that. Forgive us for times where we, we don't see your glory. And all the times that we, we give in to our fear of man. And we care more about what other people say about us than what you say about us. Father, you are gracious. All we deserve right this second is to die. Because we are so sinful. Yet we live. Not just we, we live, but we are adopted into your family as your children. And you pour out your love and grace on us every day. Uh, you, and you want to be with us forever. It's all because of your grace. And so because we are accepted in your eyes because of Jesus, help us not to live trying to prove ourselves to others. We don't have to prove ourselves to you. Set us free from having to prove ourselves to others. And God, continue to teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.